0: Good afternoon. My name is Greg Lois. And I'm Chris Major. Well, we got a picture of you on this next screen, Chris, <laughs> in case anybody missed that introduction. Uh, I'm the managing partner of Lois Law Firm. We are 21 attorneys. All we do is defend employers in workers' compensation claims in New York and New Jersey. Uh, Chris is an associate. Uh, he does mainly subrogation reimbursement, and you do a little bit of third-party or straight civil
1: defense. Yeah, and uh, in certain uh, situations, we actually end up subrogating a claim. So there's a a couple of prosecutes on our list, but uh, yeah, mostly reimbursement
0: and some civil defense. All right, so that's a little bit about us. I'm hoping if you're joining us here today that you already have copies of my 2018 New Jersey Workers' Compensation Handbook. As you saw in the handout that we sent to all of the attendees for today's webinar, Uh, There are some new cases that came out just in the last several weeks, and in fact, last two months, there's been two new cases that are going to affect this presentation today. So I'm glad you're with us today, and we're going to provide you with some updated information. Uh, This is completely live, so please feel free to type questions into us. We can see questions popping up on our screen uh, during this presentation, and we'll do our best to answer them at the end. All right, Uh, let's begin with the basics. First, there is a workers' compensation claim. Let's take that as read. New Jersey has a section of its Workers' Compensation Act, which we can rely upon uh, to obtain recovery or reimbursement. And when we have a workers' compensation claim, we're always thinking about our clients' potential reimbursement
1: rights. Fair? Yes. And, uh, you know, the situations in which this is going to apply is typically where we have a third party involved. And there's, you can see with motor vehicle accidents, that's almost always going to be the case. There's your usual Crash and third party civil suit. So uh, it's always something to keep an eye out for uh, right at the outset of any compensation claim. The facts of the accident are, are very important.
0: Yeah, and in New Jersey, since we're always filing a proactive pleading in response to a claim petition. We're always raising that Section 40 lien right if we can at the time of pleading if we see there's an opportunity there. So when do we think there's a time for a potential action? And really, we mean a second action. There's going to be a workers' compensation claim. So everything we're going to be talking about today, or a lot of it, is going to be that opportunity for a civil action against an actual tortfeasor. What do we mean when we say actual
1: tortfeasor? So we're talking about the bad guy here in layman's terms. Uh, In the aforementioned motor vehicle accident example, um, say you got a delivery driver driving on behalf of their job, Uh, some guy runs a red light Mm -hmm. and hits them, obviously the company's liable for the payment of compensation. Uh, But then there's the guy that actually did the hitting and uh, we're allowed to sue him just like we normally would.
0: Mm -hmm. And so that's something we're always thinking about was the injury the result of someone else's negligence? And this comes down to the facts of the law. So at the time a new case is referred to us or if we're defending a case, we're always thinking, what is that back pattern that that case came in on? And that's where that adjuster's initial three-point investigation and any subsequent investigation is gonna be really important for us and important to provide it to your counsel. You know, the typical case, our worker who's punched out or maybe coming to work does a slip and fall in our parking lot. Uh, we see these all the time. You know, the first questions we're gonna be asked, Who owned the garage? uh, Because it's not
1: necessarily going to be the company. It could be a third party. Uh, There's sometimes maintenance companies involved for uh, snow removal, especially with snow and ice removal. We see that a lot uh, in these outdoor slip and fall cases. Uh, And so it's important to assess at the outset uh, who might be at fault here because it's Typically, not just the employer with some of these cases.
0: Sure, and hopefully not just the employer. Uh, when we can find that there is a third party who has contributed to that loss, uh, we absolutely can recover. And particularly where the claimant, and we're really talking now about petitioners who have gone out and filed that civil lawsuit on their own. Uh, they're going to recover against that actual tortfeasor, and then we are due reimbursement under Section 40 of the New Jersey Workers' Compensation Act. Um, that reimbursement is up to everything, including the cost of litigation, up to the cost of litigation, I should say. So, uh, attorney's fees and $750 worth of costs are excluded from our recovery. So, that's pretty powerful, and it's pretty easy to apply.
1: Right. And uh, there's an article on uh, LoisLLC.com about calculating your Section 40 reimbursement, but... Uh You know, just for civil practitioners out there, um, you know, typically you're going to treat disbursements and costs of suit as not a part of the settlement, right? Because it's not going to go to any of the parties. Uh, But, you know, you do some digging and uh, New Jersey intended the 750 expenses of suit to be a separate statutory contribution. So we have the third coming off the top for the attorney's fee and then the $750 $750 expenses of suit contributed out of our lien.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. So pretty easy to calculate. Uh, again, you can go to our website and read that article, but very generally it's, it's easy for us to sort of give you an exact approximation. Is that an oxymoron? <laughs> give you an exact number as to what you should be recovering from that third-party uh, recovery that the uh, petitioners obtained. Uh, we're always going to be coming to our clients and asking them for a payment ledger. Hey, we need to know everything you've paid for medical and indemnity. Uh, we're going to be looking at that's basically everything you paid for temp total, that's wage replacement benefits, everything you've paid for medical benefits and any permanent partial disability. Now, Section 20 money is lienable if you reserve your right to have that considered a payment of compensation on the Section 20 settlement itself. Just because you Section 20 it doesn't mean that you can't get that money back. Just be very cautious, put on that proposed form of order that it is something you're expecting to be reimbursed for. And finally, administrative expenses, Things like nurse case management, generally speaking, are not recoverable as part of our lien unfortunately, either our defense attorney costs. Sadly, no. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Also, our expert fees. So, uh, if we're getting a wonderful IME physician to get us a second opinion on this uh, petitioner's need for further treatment or permanent residual disability, that is not leanable. That is considered our administrative expense in terms of defending the case.
1: And you'll often see uh, third-party plaintiff's attorneys uh, invoke these banned expenses at the end of the case. You know, uh, Will have sent the payment ledger along with our Section 40 lien letter saying, hey, we have a lien in this amount, uh, comprised of X amount in indemnity, X amount in medical. Uh, and they'll bounce back that ledger and say, well, you can't lean this, you can't lean this, you can't lean this. So there does come a point at third party settlement where we have to go through our client's payment ledger with a fine tooth comb and remove any of these banned expenses. As Greg just discussed, we have the IME costs, defense attorney fees. Court costs, fees for defense, medical vendor fees. Uh, As one attorney in uh, our New Jersey offices uh, put it to me, the way to view it is just as a benefit to the petitioner. Mm -hmm. So if it's not a benefit they actually received, uh, you can't rightfully lean on it. I mean, that's an oversimplification, but it's a good place to start.
0: Yeah, it's a good way of thinking about it. Um, All right, New Jersey's statute is not self-executing. It means that if you do not raise your Section 40 lien rights to reimbursement, you're waiving them. Uh, And New Jersey also has a very specific way that it needs to be uh, raised, and specifically it requires that there be some sort of proof of service. We always send them out either lawyer service or certified mail return receipt requested. Uh, Generally, I like to assert our Section 40 lien right or reimbursement right in the actual pleading that we file with the court uh, that we know that our adversary is going to receive. But we also have to serve it on the defendants and the plaintiffs in that third-party civil case. So... Be careful. Don't rest on your rights. And we're going to talk a little bit about how New Jersey case law is affecting the way we seek that reimbursement. Fair? Yes. Okay. Uh, A big part of what you do is monitor cases.
1: Right. And as you were just discussing with uh, the parties we're going to serve these letters on, this is some of these sites we're about to talk about are a fantastic resource for those purposes. Uh, So the big one, I usually use ACMS Public Access. It's a Pretty intuitive. Uh, If you have the index number, docket number, uh, great. You can just select the tab for locate by docket and type it in. Uh, They're all going to, well, not all, but any sort of uh, claims that are higher in value you're gonna find under the law division. Uh, And you can search by party name. I find the functionality to be difficult at times, but uh, ordinarily if you're dealing with a third party plaintiff's attorney that's not really forthcoming with their information, you're able to find it on other sources. So we also have uh, the Superior Court of New Jersey Motion Calendar search page. Uh, And then we have the future, which New Jersey has been moving toward, is eCourts, where there's more and more information available. And uh, different venues, counties, jurisdictions are moving forward with uh, incorporating e-filing. And sometimes you can actually, and this is new, it's not new in New York for us, but in New Jersey, the e-file documents being available can actually be a big help. You know we can see how much is being demanded what the latest filing in the case was so uh there's an electronic case jacket again you're going to find it by party name index number docket number etc but uh, those are just a couple resources to keep tabs on the third party claim without having to lean too heavily on the attorneys involved
0: yeah another thing we're doing is we're asking clients to make sure they send us updated cib iso claims index bureau searches showing if they filed claims perhaps in other jurisdictions our firm uh, has a full New York practice and a New Jersey practice, so you're well familiar with the New York uh, electronic docketing system mm-hmm. as well. And it seems that New Jersey is adopting eCourts, its courthouse by courthouse, right? I mean, it should be all rolled out by the end of next year. Is that there?
1: Yeah, I think uh, I think they were saying by May 2018. Don't quote me on that, but uh, it's v- it's widely available in most counties across okay. New Jersey as of now. So. They're getting there uh, step by step. But uh, I should note just as a practice point, um, you know, you got to make sure you still adhere with the rules of service. If you end up in subrogating a claim, you know, stepping into the shoes of uh, the petitioner. So, I mean, e-filing and service and all those other requirements is a hairy issue to get into. So
0: um, we just had that in this office where I think New Brunswick, didn't they just go to the New Brunswick? The Middlesex Courthouse, didn't they just adopt e-filing? Yeah. And and they're adopting it sort of on this rolling schedule. So council has to be a little wary of who actually has e-filing right now, who doesn't, et cetera. Right. All right. Um, petitioners council, they should be requesting our payment ledger. Uh, and we should be requesting from them their settlement ledgers, in other words exactly their settlement statement that's going to be filed with the court because this is going to give us our total amount possible for us to recover. I want to see what they're filing with the court. I don't want to rely on what petitioner counsel is telling me. I just had too many bad experiences. We'll trust them all. Okay, trust but verify, trust but verify. So uh, we're not going to go by what they tell us. Hey, it was a million dollar settlement. It was this it was that. I want to see your settlement ledger. I want to see exactly what you're filing with the court. In you handle the blood and guts of a lot of the um, Section 40 Lean reimbursement discussions with adversaries. Fair? Right, okay. right. And uh, yeah, you I, I hear mean. the same pack of lies, <laughs> lies, and damn lies from them all the time. Let's talk about that. Yeah, so. Um, and uh, let's give advice really to our risk professionals about. When you're communicating, because many of our clients do this without attorneys, right? they communicate directly with the plaintiff's counsel and try to negotiate the settlement. Tell us about the things that you hear uh, that are just these damn lies that we all know are
1: lies. So uh, I guess if you want, you can call them tools of the trade. That might be giving them uh, too much much due consideration. But um, Mm -hmm. yeah, uh, one of my personal favorites, uh, and these all sort of fall under that umbrella category, is uh, creating an emergency. So, uh, a big one I've gotten a couple times is, uh, you know, it's on for the first uh, settlement conference or mediation, you know, parties are just sitting down at the table and you get a panicked phone call from somebody going, the defense carrier's here, they have a check ready, they're going to cut it today, we can walk away, we can settle, you just have to, you know, take a quarter of your lien back and everyone gets money today. And the answer is quite simply, no. So, you're going to hear stuff like, oh, this case stinks, I have poor liability, uh, there's not a lot of damages, there's not enough money for my client, um, you know, I'm not going to accept a dismissal unless we compromise, um, and we, oh, my personal favorite, we always do a third, a third, a third, and uh, yeah, one thing that uh, <laughs> a, former, a former employer told me when I first got started in law business is uh, as soon as somebody says, I've been doing this X amount of years, you can pretty much guarantee that the next thing out of their mouth is going to be a lie. So I've heard four or five times already, I've been doing this so many years, Chris, and it, it always settles for a third, a third, a third. Right. And that's just not true.
0: Right, right. So that's one of those things where there is no statutory rule in New Jersey, regulation, case law, anything that says you have to accept one third of your overall lien. Yeah, sometimes it comes down to that, but it's not actually a thing. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um. They also, our adversaries, and my adversaries, I should say, really, plaintiffs in the third party case come to us all the time and say, my case is so bad, if you guys don't compromise your lien, I'm just going to dismiss the thing. Yeah. And, I mean, that's just hot air. <laughs> if they dismiss this thing, great. We step into your shoes. We can assume the prosecution of the case. No big deal. Great. You've already got it here. Probably have experts ready to go. Um, so. Those are some of the common things that we hear all the time. Let's talk about how we maximize our reimbursement.
1: Right. So uh, as you discussed with, we're waiting to see what they actually file with the court. We're not going to rely on them for closing costs. Um, We're actually going to wait for an offer on the table. We want to be looking at numbers first. Uh, Another favorite move is hey, can you get your client to consent to a blanket reimbursement percentage? Like, if I could just get your guarantee that you'll be good with 35%, no matter what happens, we're golden. And the answer is no. Uh, I mean, you always want to make sure you're working with actual numbers. It's important for preserving future rights, which we're going to talk about shortly. Um, But yeah, you're going to wait for an actual offer. Um, And you're not going to negotiate until that offer is on the table. And what's actually kind of interesting is... uh, There's a nice little dichotomy of interest as the case progresses, because while it's going along, we want that plaintiff to get as much money as possible. We're rooting for him. We're advising if we actually can help in any of those areas. Uh, And then when it comes to settlement, all of a sudden we're We're adversaries, yeah. So uh, you're gonna ask for the costs and the fee arrangement. Again, don't take their word for it. You're gonna look for the closing costs that are gonna be filed with the court, with the stip of dismissal or however they close out the case. Uh, Explicitly, when you give your consent, you want to reserve the right to apply a credit toward future payments. Right.
0: <laughs> You've jumped into the next slide, <coughs> which is, sure, let's say that they're recovering a million dollars, but we've only expended 50000 in the workers' compensation case. We've got a huge future credit that we would want to keep alive. Right. And, you know, whatever is not expended is conserved. Um, and those credits would be reserved on any section – uh, 20 or section 22 settlement we do in the workers compensation court uh, as well as uh, could be preserved uh, just in the memorandum of the settlement stipulation that we're doing or the consent to the settlement that we're doing with our adversary so uh, we like to put everything in writing back and forth I Personally, I'd like to do everything in writing. Um, that's one of our practice guides here. The other thing we do here is when you, especially when you get that urgent phone call from the plaintiff's attorney, we've had this experience many times where they say, "We're in mediation right now. The judge is calling the number. We just need you guys to consent to X amount of dollars." You know, that's a big moment, and, and t- typically we don't want to, um, you know, say this out loud, but we do this. Well, time's on our side, right? yeah. so there's no need to immediately respond. Let's let the thing air out a little bit, right? We can use time to our advantage and whittle down or use that settlement day opportunity that they're taking to try to maximize the value of their case to maximize our recovery, which is we can wait them out. We can wait them out. We can sort of stretch out that opportunity there and push them and say, "Well, I got to go communicate with my client." You know, we can do things and really use every single leverage point that we have.
1: And this is where that uh, old adage of you know uh, making a deal on the courthouse steps comes from. Mm-hmm. I mean, I we've seen several cases uh, reimbursement cases in New Jersey where uh, we you know the cases. Act, we had one recently where the case was on for a motion to dismiss, and the liability actually. Was horrible, and the case was going to get booted, and it was the motion was going to be decided on a Wednesday uh, at 11 a.m. And uh, we provided our consent to settle Wednesday at 10 a.m. <laughs>
0: right, right. And so you can use time to your advantage, uh, and you know, sort of think about that moment. Now, generally speaking, we appear at the settlement conferences by telephone much more frequently than in person, uh, but we, that's a that's a situation where you're going to want your counsel to be sort of on deck for those settlement opportunities. If it's a huge case and there's a lot of issues, maybe it's valuable to have workers' comp uh, lien reimbursement counsel to actually go, uh, that we leave that up to the clients, but more typically because our input's going to be rather pretty limited, we'll appear by telephone. Right. seems to work just as well. All right. So let's talk about subrogation. We get a constant questions here about whether you can subrogate in New Jersey. I think it's fair to say you can subrogate in New Jersey, and we do that pretty actively here. We That's may have handed stuff. out
1: a few spoilers earlier on. Yeah, I think this. so. <laughs> I think we did. All
0: right. So uh, under the subrogation statute in New Jersey, we can absolutely prosecute the case by stepping into the shoes of the petitioner. Of course, there's problems with pursuing those claims.
1: Right. Uh, I mean, the bigger issues arise when the petitioner is not represented in the underlying workers' compensation case, uh, because you got to bear in mind that you're dealing with a uh, dealing with a lay person, mm-hmm. and there's no. a
0: reluctant pro- plaintiff. I mean, by definition, they don't want to do it. Right.
1: right. So, I mean, if they don't want to file suit, you can imagine when it comes time to comply with discovery. I mean, they're not act. They're not going to be scratching at the door to give you uh, the information you're demanding.
0: Right. Again, we're going to look at the facts of the case. You know, we've got our traveling business here. In our example, a traveling businessman here in our example, he slips and falls. You know, he's on employer required travel. And, you know, we're going to ask those same fact questions that we would in a typical reimbursement case. Who owns the hallway or the location? Who maintains it? Who's at fault? and And even where that plaintiff says, I'm not suing anybody, we can absolutely step into those shoes. More rarely, or it has occurred, uh, in fact, I think we're dealing with one right now where we have a medical malpractice issue. So this is a admitted compensable workers' compensation case where post-workers' compensation uh, acceptance, uh, the uh, claimant goes and gets medical care. Uh, The medical care Unfortunately, it was performed incorrectly or improperly and they resulted with even more significant severe and debilitating injuries than they had from the underlying workers' compensation claim. And the question has been, hey, now that uh, potential petitioner claimant has a potential medical malpractice claim against this physician or treatment provider who provided this uh, um, uh, inappropriate or improper care. Can we subrogate their medical malpractice claim? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely, you can do that.
1: And this is where it's uh, it's important to actually have counsel in your corner as far as protecting your reimbursement rights, because with some of the facts of the case, uh, it can be a little subjective. Uh, I mean, I think the case that you're talking about, where we're looking at the malpractice action, there's already a third-party civil suit against right. the responsible tortfeasor. So a
0: second civil suit arising out of the same underlying workers' compensation laws. There are a lot of moving parts in a case like that. But the main takeaway from this is it is possible to do. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, Recovering at law, now, again, remember, we're stepping into the shoes of the petitioner or the claimant. Yeah, we've got the same deadlines, filing requirements, notice requirements, complaint requirements, pleading requirements that that plaintiff would have had. Uh, In New Jersey now, with the electronic filing, I think they even have a separate... Uh, button you click when you are subrogating. And I think it says, you know, you're stepping in as third-party counsel. Uh, Under the rules in New Jersey, you have to wait one year. You have to advise the petitioner of their right to file the first-party claim. You must then wait 10 more days. Then you can file the complaint. So there's a number of statutory deadlines to keep in mind, which, of course, we take care of that for you. Um, And just as as a side note, uh, we've also had questions about where there's been notice that the third party was failed to be given. Um, well, you can still collect directly against the petitioner, right? Mm. And their attorney, From that would be their legal malpractice for failing to file the claim. We've already talked about the problems of an unrepresented claimant who we're now going to be dealing with as our client, not not great. Um, and there's also one other side to this that bears mention. And let's really talk about what we're trying to actually recover.
1: Right. So, um we're just going for the extent of what we've paid in workers compensation benefits aka our uh and this is something that we typically put in our section 40f notices to uh the petitioner because as we've discussed they're typically unrepresented and they're a layperson. um and you're going to want to make the argument to the court if you're subrogating this claim uh that you have standing to do this and you don't want this petitioner later down the road objecting to it saying they sent me legalese on a page. I don't understand this. I didn't know what I was surrendering. Right. Um, so we always make it very explicit. Hey, you know, we're going after our lien here. We do not represent you or your interests. We represent your workers' compensation carrier, and we're going after the amount of our lien, which is X. Any amount in excess, we're not seeking that. We're, we're not your advocate here.
0: Correct, and, and that's something that, to think about, right? Well, the only thing we're trying to recover is the extent and nature of our loss. All right. A uh, very recent decision, uh, recently decided by the New Jersey Supreme Court. It talked about the waiver of civil claims. Many of our clients and employers uh, provide services to other parties. That's their business. You know, They're a cleaning company or a construction company, etc., And they're providing services on somebody else's premises, on somebody else's property. And by the very nature, they're dealing with a third business or another business. And they will often put in their contracts with the with their other businesses, hey, uh, we agree we're not going to sue you or we're going to waive our right uh, to uh, for any reimbursement. But some of these employers, and in the case of Vitale versus Sharing Plow, a decision that was just decided December 11th by the New Jersey Supreme Court, the employer was asking the petitioner or the employee to sign an agreement that says you will not sue our oh. third party uh, clients, the people that we're providing services to, and in this case, Uh, My understanding is Mr. Vitale was working for a cleaning company that was providing services to Sharing Plow. Um, And they they asked the employee to waive their rights. Well, the Supreme Court says you absolutely cannot do that. Um, You you don't uh, have the right to impinge upon their civil rights in that way. And they threw that case out and said, Philip Vitale, and by the way, the workers' compensation carrier, you can proceed directly against the employer's client, even though the employer doesn't want to do that because it's their business relationship.
1: Right. And you'll see uh, these agreements are actually more commonplace than one would think because mm-hmm. they represent something of a of a competitive edge mm-hmm. for these uh, staffing slash temp agencies, uh, however you want to refer to them. Uh, you know, if you have that third-party employer reviewing, let's just call them bids, and one of them goes, oh my goodness, we're not going to get sued if anything goes wrong on our property. Of course, they're going to go for that. So these are actually uh, more common than one might think. And, uh, you know, without diving headfirst into uh you know, the whole legal discussion of the Supreme Court decision, um, it comes down to the fact that there's a prohibition in Section 39 against pre-accident agreements. uh, Waiver, right. Right. And they said that in read in conjunction with Section 40, you can't waive your right to compensation and you can't waive your Section 40 right to sue a third party from a work-related accident either.
0: Right. So that's really new case law that totally new in this jurisdiction. And it was in fact so new, it went all the way up to the Supreme Court that was addressed this year. Uh, Another uh, new decision that came out of the appellate division in November uh, is a situation that we face all the time. And this is a a situation where uh, we know that the, uh, the workers' compensation petitioner has filed a lawsuit against somebody. And we're sitting back there, we're going... This is great. We don't have to do anything, you know. We sent out our Section 40 lien notices to all parties, right? We've done everything we think we should be doing, and what happens next is, for whatever reason, and in this case, there was a stipulation of dismissal, I believe, voluntarily filed Mm -hmm. and then uh, not ever retracted. Um, The petitioner essentially abandoned uh, that third-party claim, allowed the case to be dismissed. In fact, they stipulated to dismissal. They didn't mm-hmm. provide any notice to the employer or to the worker's compensation carrier. They abandon it, more than 90 days elapses, and now the employer says, wait a second, uh, we've been prejudiced, nobody gave us not, uh, notice of this. Uh, they've abandoned their claim, we should be allowed to refile or renew their claim, step into their shoes and pursue it as their subregor. i uh, sorry, subregee, no, subrogor. my bad. Oh. Uh, the case goes up to the appellate division and they say, no, uh, sorry, uh, when the uh, plaintiff abandons their claim you have 90 days to reinstate it. If you fail to do that within the 90 days, sorry, statutorily, you're out of luck. And that's an interesting uh, decision. And, and the reason I think it's interesting is because the plaintiff in the third party case had no obligation to tell the workers comp carrier uh, or provide any notice. And they explicitly in the appellate uh, decision said, They've got no duty to tell you they're doing this, right? Nothing. Which,
1: nothing in Section 40f imposes a notice requirement for this uh, dismissal, right? So, and and that's where we're getting the 90-day uh, requirement from is is Subpart F of Section 40. And uh, what the other thing that uh, I also find interesting about this case is, you know, uh, Section 40f uh, specifically references uh, like a case being left by the wayside for lack of prosecution. Right. Right. And this is this is a stipulation to dismiss. This is not an abandoned claim. This is one where the parties just agreed to close it out. And Mm -hmm. uh, yep. And the appellate division said, well, it falls within the meaning of section 40 F. That is basically the functional equivalent of stepping away from this claim and the carrier slash employer Is subject to the same requirements based on this stipulation to dismiss.
0: Yeah, now if you're a risk professional that's dealing with subrogation or reimbursement claims in New Jersey, this is a case that's going to affect the way you practice. I can tell you that you're definitely going to want to monitor your cases very carefully, and that would be using e-courts or one of the online filing systems to make sure that case is moving along, that it's not getting dismissed. I would certainly want to be sending a letter, and now we know you better send it every less than 60 days, maybe every 45 to 60 days, to the parties in that civil action saying, hey, here's my lien. I'm still alive. I want to recover. You haven't abandoned your claim, right? Let me know. Have you added any new parties? You're going to be wanting to send that letter uh, all the time to preserve your right. In this case, the insurance carrier that brought the claim up to the appellate division really didn't have any uh, good faith effort that they had made to inquire as to whether the uh, plaintiff in that case, Pino, was actually doing anything to continue to uh, preserve or to prosecute their claim, and so they didn't really have much good faith to stand on, I think.
1: Right, and and you can't just uh, the case also sort of stands for the implicit proposition that you can't just send out your Section 40 letter, say my right is preserved, my lien is invoked, and good a cocktail and, and that's it. Let's just wait for the money to roll in. Right. No, uh, there's active monitoring required. And this is where it's important for uh, defense counsel to be on top of, uh, you know, the dates, uh, what's going on in the third party case. And I, I personally, uh, I have no qualms about being a nag. I'm happy to call these people <laughs> if I can't get the information I want. That's our role. Yeah. Okay.
0: <laughs> Let's go to questions because we're running low on time here, running out of time. Let's take a look at what we got here in terms of questions. Is this possible? I see no actual questions. Well, it is the day after
1: Christmas. Either that or we're just very, very good at explaining. It
0: could be a little bit of both. (laughs) People could be out there returning their gifts, et cetera. Um, Anyway, thanks for joining us. Um, Our next webinar next month is going to be on Medicare issues, I believe. Yep, Medicare secondary payer stuff. So please join us for that. Um, Thanks for joining us. Have a happy new year. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.